It's fun fact. Coming at you live and direct. It's I guess it's live in the sense that we're recording it live. It's live for literally for me and you, not really for anybody else. Well, for people who subscribe for the double deluxe oh, tier right. of the Patreon that exists. That's a level of Patreon, though, that I don't even recommend. I don't even subscribe to that level. I don't even get to hear it live. It's very expensive. It is. It is, it is expensive. It is. It's call for pricing. <laughs> <laughs> So to start the show off, we have a technical uh, housekeeping, oh, a tech note, a tech note uh, where I was informed for about two hours, there was a uh, technical error on episode 57. It was listed uh, up. This is, of course, episode 57 is butt water air adventure tourism <laughs> thank you so much for saying it <laughs> i really like that episode but i made no, an error i really and uploaded episode 56 I really like it too. in its stead well the actual error was that i didn't paste in the audio url of episode 57 while i was editing that version of the show and so it was just a typo basically and then it meant for the first couple hours of people's podcatchers were downloading the wrong episode and so yeah. if you uh our, our analytics numbers are because notice our analytics numbers uh <laughs> say a lot of people are like oh, okay i've already heard this episode and they just skipped it um but if you haven't heard us talk about if, if the term butt water air adventure tourism you're not sure what that is we didn't talk about butts and water and all of that and you're like oh man i'm curious that seems like a really thoughtful uh factual scientific <laughs> conversation um and uh that then you go back now and and then episode 57 will is was corrected uh promptly so your your uh, podcast app should now get the correct audio for that i i like all of the episodes of the show but i really like that one i think that was especially fun and i i hope people will go and hear it if you haven't heard it already if you have listen to it again it's fun yeah so 57 yeah. check it out but now we're on to 58 so we're going to pharmaceuticals corner a classic. One of the OG corners. That's a, that's OG. Yeah. I mean, you know. First 10 episodes, I think we were talking about that a couple times. Uh-huh. Uh, fun fact. Pills are capsule shaped because consumers think that is more effective. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, I think there's a lot of things like this in the world. <laughs> I don't have a good other example, but I feel like, I feel like the, the placebo effect, on, especially with marketing... Mm-hmm. is very it's the it's kind of the way that like they they probably package the same stuff in, in for some some kinds of men like they'll package the same stuff that they sell to oh yeah else. but then they're man for men of, yeah exactly are you man enough to use this dove moisturizing cream it's a black container exactly they'll change the my i mean i really my favorite is when they do stuff like mandals which are candles for men and i think a real thing yeah, uh, uh-huh. you know it's like the, you, the surface of the candle is rugged. Yeah, exactly. It's smell. It's smell. Oh, it is mandals candles for men dot uh-huh. com, which uh-huh. is cr- pretty uh-huh. incredible website uh, uh-huh. URL. But like, it's like you know the wingman, the black pearl. You know, it's like, but it's a, it's a candle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I just I it's so ridiculous. Or uh, Adam Carolla, you remember him? Mm, no i mean i the name is familiar but not really he had a i only know this because uh i used to listen to bill simmons a lot okay and he would have adam crowell on as a guest and adam crowell has a drink company called mangria mm-hmm. which is you know just sangria 
And I just don't, you know, I just find that stuff hilarious. So, okay. But getting off of toxic so masculinity capsules. corner, yeah. back to... <laughs> Which is a good, it's an important corner. <laughs> it is, it is. But getting back, and, and does in this case have overlap with marketing placebo corner or, yeah. or what have you and and pharmaceuticals so, I, find okay, that, so. I find the placebo effect really interesting especially when it comes to uh pharmaceuticals because it, it opens this sort of interesting question which is especially important for some uh types of medication where the placebo effect is particularly helpful mm-hmm. so like placebo effect for like chemotherapy and it's like some of these things is like not particularly effective. The cancer doesn't care a lot about whether or not you think it's going to get destroyed. It either really does is or it the, there's not there's not like you know I must help a little bit with how much people are fighting. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of effects that are uh, like correlated with uh, good outcomes in cancer. Like if you feel like you have a chance of overcoming it, for example, like yeah. that's like correlated with success. But in terms of like the at the micro level of like okay you have some chemotherapy and then the chemotherapy is like destroying the cancer cells but then you just give like a placebo oh i see what you mean yeah then it's mm-hmm. like not very much effect is found on the cancer cells like maybe you you are able- goop tells me you're wrong yeah yeah um <laughs> in contrast the pain medication industry okay it's always them but yes well, it's it's an it's a an interesting industry because it's super broad application. Most people at some point have need for pain meds, and pain is very subjective. And your emotional mental relationship to the pain that you're feeling is a substantial portion of how you perceive it. Right, 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 right. That um, makes sense. And so, pills for pain and mood is another one where as i understand it it has a larger um placebo effect measurable Mm -hmm. uh than some other things um and so it particularly matters for these and so the companies that make these kind of pills do a lot of research and they're doing this sort of evaluation um but capsule like when you when i say capsule shape do you know what i mean by that shape like the kind of like yeah yeah the old Mm -hmm. school like kind of pill shaped yeah, what we would now think of as pill shape, but like historically pills weren't like what pill shape used to mean was like a little round blob. Oh, that's all. Yeah. Okay. That's also pill, pill right? shaped. If you say something is pill shaped, it's a little bit unclear now because it used to be like the way that they used to make pills. Well, pills back, go back to like Egyptian times and they would make like a little blob of something that would have like, I don't know, myrrh or saffron or something. And it was supposed to make you feel better. But like in the uh, say... Uh, 1700s or 1800s or even i think actually this technique was used maybe back to maybe as far as roman times pills have been around for a long time but they, they would roll like a really long tube and then they would cut it into these little discs oh okay and that's where we got the sort of classic say tylenol sized yeah you know, the little we're talking con- about circles versus ovals here is yeah kind of like a cir- little circular blob, blob or you yeah. look at well i don't know if all, all birth control pills are, are like this but most any birth control pills that I can remember having seen are quite small because they come in a package that has a number of them because you have to take them on, on a regular basis. And it's important that you take the certain amount on certain days. And so they make them tend to make them smaller. It's a little more convenient because of that. Uh, but then they tend to have this little smaller form factor rather than the larger quarter, sort of like a long oval with rounded ends, which yeah. is uh, the shape of a capsule, which like a capsule, meaning like from the word to encapsulate, yes. was traditionally this format where you kind of have like an empty 
kind of hull that yeah. we had there was two halves like if you ever ha- had a medicine where you could actually tell that it was like pressed out of two ends and then it's filled with something and then they would they would it together and they would bind it uh and then inside and like some uh, i remember when i was a kid there was a there was an instruction from the doctor is like well if you're having a hard time getting the kid to take this medicine you can actually open apart the capsule and then you can stir in the powder that's inside into their food right because uh, it's like encapsulating the inside right um yeah. so that was convenient for various things and there's certain kind of medicines where that's like a particularly advantageous way you to need it sometimes right for like how for slow release and things like that yeah there's various advantages where it can from pharmaceutical perspective i'm obviously not a pharmacist so i don't know the exact like details of why that is the like when in what circumstance it is and isn't beneficial but so this was invented and it's like commonly used thing but it was uh, figured out through studies um that people perceived the capsules as being more effective than huh. a tablet like a tablet being a powder that's been compressed down if you think of like a slightly gritty pill that's yeah. white tip stereotypically um then it's a a tablet which is a i mean obviously a tablet is a word that has various meanings but in the context of pharmaceuticals a tablet is compressed powder um which is a very um like if con- an- another very common format but people perceived the pill shaped or what old school like roundy pill shaped compressed tablets to be less effective than a capsule that had the same ingredients that is so interesting. And which is interesting because especially when you think of like pain medication, the way the delivery method could be anything. Like you could even have it like, uh, if you ever, do you have neocitrin in the States? Have you ever seen that? Mm, I don't know. What it, it's is. like this little power. It's this powder that you get. There might be other brands of it, but it's like if you have a cold, then it marks itself. It's like a hot lemon drink for if you have a cold, but it has acetaminophen in it. Oh, wow. I don't think you can get acetaminophen over the counter here anymore. You can't get acetaminophen? You can't get Tylenol over the counter? No, I'm thinking of... What am I thinking of? What's in Dayquil or NyQuil? Pseudofedrin. Pseudofedrin is what you're thinking. Which apparently is in Neocitrin. We we have... Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Here we had... I mean, maybe you had Pseudofedrin and Neocitrin as well. What is the... I wonder what the Neocitrin equivalent is for the USA. What is that? And then what do people say? They're a flu. Yeah, I do know what I've, they're. I've not. Is. I haven't seen that. Here. But it's like, like it because there's also things like emergency and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but that's their flu is more real than that. Yeah, well, it has acetaminophen in it, um, right? Which you know it's helpful when you feel crappy. Um, oh, but if there's you so many different, different, so many different mixtures that probably. All yeah, have and we've the same all gotten into yes, all the same ingredients. It really makes in two different ways. That's another. We can link the fun fact for that. That was that was a fun one. Like there's yes. basically only two cold uh, ingredients that actually do anything, and then they just remix them in hundred ways to all the variants. That's right. Oh, there's the flu version and the cold version, the cold cold and flu version, and like the ingredients are identical. Um, so my point with all that is that you can deliver these pain meds in various ways, and it can be equally effective in theory. But if you deliver it in a way that the recipient feels like it's going to be more effective then because pain is a subjective thing then it is more effective it's not like it, you can't just don't just hand wave it away because pain is subjective um right. and so that is that is uh driven the tendency for tablets um, which are the pressed powder to now being pressed into the shape of a capsule rather than in like the more straightforward, easier, maybe even easier to swallow because it's smaller mm-hmm. pill shape. And that's also another one of these like uh, weird effects on pills. Um, people perceive larger pills to be more effective, but they find smaller pills to be more pleasant. 
but the the kind of balance of what size pills tend to be, especially for like something like Tylenol or whatever, is like fighting in between those two things. That's so interesting. Because the best pill would be like rather small. Right. But then you think it doesn't work as well, so it doesn't work so as well. It doesn't well. work as well. So you need a bigger one, even though that's more annoying to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and the, now that I know this, I'm going to be really annoyed at big pills because they'll be like, you only did this to try to trick me. Yeah. I think there's an exception with supplements, like certain dietary supplements. It's literally like it's difficult to put enough calcium into the pill without making it kind of larger. And so, like, some of those supplement okay. pills are okay. larger for a reason, I think. Um, but some of them, it's just totally like, yeah, oh, we tested man. these different sizes and this is the one that people thought would be the best. Yeah, um, that's wild. And then, so that's how you got the, have you ever heard the term caplet? Uh, I've heard of capulet, but that's from Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, capulet's from Romeo and Juliet. Caplet is like a brand term for a tablet shaped, sorry, a, a tablet shaped into a capsule. Shape. Oh, bec- okay. Where they took it and shaped it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's what they, they switched Tylenol in the 80s after the... Do you ever hear about the, like, um, scandal? Or scandal sort of implies it was Tylenol's fault, which it wasn't. But there was, like, this uh, Tylenol tampering uh, situation in the 80s. Yeah, where, this is where the, what led to the seal-proof... Yes, it changed yeah. a whole bunch of th- practices where, so if anyone doesn't know, there, there was uh, somebody in, I think, Chicago um, had tampered with uh, some bottles of Tylenol and put poison into some of the yeah. capsules. It was like those cap- old school capsules that you could open up and put something in and then close them back up again. Um, and that was before any of the things na- now that we have for personally for this reason. And then now when you open up a bottle in the uh, store, it has the seal over the, even though you um, you unscrewed the cap, then has an additional seal underneath like a tamper proof yeah uh, unlike the unlike the halloween candy thing which Mm. is a total myth which is like the only kids that have been poisoned or killed by halloween candy was done so by relatives right and not like a random person and not a random person trying to kill kids but uh the the tylenol thing was very real and you know now we have and everything's like if it's been tampered with don't use it you know yeah yeah and and so there's one um additional benefit to this caplet uh formulation or like tablets in general is that they can't be tampered with in the same way like you can't open them up put something in them and then close them back up again. right okay caplets so tylenol switched away from the capsules to caplets. that could be opened up to but they wanted to keep the shape that people thought would be more effective yeah so then they invented this caplet shape and then now there's since then there's been further iterations like they have the easy tabs and various coatings and there's a whole like you know you can do a a whole series on some Mm -hmm. of the different like things that like 90 percent of innovation in that market is varying levels of branding and placebo right because placebo helps you like if they can make you feel like it'll be more effective it will be more effective so at least there's that whereas the branding stuff is just like totally cynical <laughs> right totally and i but i mean like at the same time you know not that many new pain medications completely new being invented anymore well certainly not ones that are uh like safe for consumers to just just get over, over the, the counter, counter or, that's right. or like not even over the counter but just like on the shelf and <clears throat> i think we've mentioned this before but it's like fascinating to me is like if tylenol acetaminophen was invented today it wouldn't get approved oh why because the de- the amount of the dosage that you need to be effective is too close to the dosage that is dangerous. 
Okay. So they, they, one of the things when you're doing FDA approval, they look through a whole bunch of things like proving that it actually is effective and that it's safe and the, the, the whole bunch of things that they look for. But one of the things, as I understand it, is that they look for um, how, what is the dangerous dose? And they want the effective dose to be quite far away so that accidental overdose is difficult. Uh-huh. Um, so it would be if it was like, oh, okay, well, you know, we, we say typically you take one of these pills, but make sure you don't take 100. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, okay, well, yeah, someone probably won't. And like that's right. But Tylenol is actually a much closer. Yeah, there's not much room for error in between what the like what is the minimum dose where you're starting to actually get pain relief? And, and then, of course, people will easily double that, like just because I want more pain relief, right? So like doubling is not something that someone would expect to be dangerous. And for most of the time, it's not. But then you get into like, yeah, maybe then you you that's you kind of habitually double it and then maybe you double it again. And it's maybe somebody who is like relatively bo- low body mass and they've had a couple drinks and maybe there's some complicating factor and then you're starting to potentially have liver uh, consequences. Wow. It's not the the danger the the threshold for Tylenol getting dangerous is much lower than most things that you can just buy or maybe than almost anything you can buy just over the counter in terms of of medications anything that I know about anyway. Well you know my 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 father was um directly responsible for the over the countering of Aleve naproxen sodium ah uh when he worked at a, a pharmaceutical company called Syntex in the 90s so that's like one of the three or four main, like when I think of like just over the counter, yeah, or I, I use the term ones. over the counter, but like there is actually over the counter, I think is supposed to mean that you have to ask the pharmacist for it as opposed to, I don't know. What's the term for yeah, it? I don't it's know. It's just on the just shelf. On the shelf. Yeah. yeah. Uh, over the counter. I think it is what they use OTA to mean or OTC or to OTC, mean at this point. Over the counter drug. So in Canada, there, the, there is schedule one, schedule two, and schedule three. Schedule one is needs a prescription. Schedule two is that has to be held by the pharmacist. Hmm. So that's like behind the counter. And then schedule three is that you can just go and get it off the shelf. Well, so Aleve has been OTC in BC where you live since 2010, but it is not available OTC in Quebec, Newfoundland, or Labrador. I didn't realize that naproxen was that Aleve and naproxen is the same thing. I didn't realize that that it was that recent of a thing. Yeah, two thousand nine is in in the rest of Canada. Two thousand ten in British Columbia. And but then in, when did it become a thing in the states? In or 19, when was it? In nineteen ninety four. Oh, okay. So it had been around for a while. Well, then. so yeah. So naproxen was first released in like the seventies as a prescription only drug, and then naproxen sodium became a brand in like the in like nineteen eighty. But then in nineteen ninety four, it was approved as an over the counter version. And that was the project that, as far as I understand it, my father was the head of. So, oh, uh, good job, Dad. Yeah. And he uh, he yeah. listens to this show, so good job, Dad. Oh, and hey, if I got cool. the details wrong, let me know, and I'll do a follow-up. Okay, well, now I'm worried, because now we have somebody who like actually knows what they're talking about, and I'm making all these claims about like medications and stuff, and he's, if he listens to the show, he's probably like, well, technically, that's not Well, true. he'll let me know, and then... Well, please, can, yeah, send in follow-up of yeah. all the things that I got wrong. <laughs> Hopefully, it was only slightly wrong, or, <laughs> or maybe misleading by omission and not like completely backwards, but we'll find out next episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool, but I, just, I find that stuff interesting when oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's like... Things that we take for granted is like, oh, well, this was done by doctors as like, this to must be the best way. only. 
Yeah, which and like again, my th- like if you can make pain, med- pain medication seem feel more effective to people than it is, it is. for all yeah, intents yeah. and purposes more effective. Yeah. It's interesting those packaging concerns um, that uh, that are fairly up to the you know just up to the the whims of what people feel and like it's cultural context. Like color is one of the things that has an effect um, in studies uh, that where people will perceive the color of certain medications to may mean they're more or less effective depending on what the medication is for and the cultural background of the person. And so like I just came across in my doing research for this, a study that was studying uh, patients' perceptions of drug effectiveness by color in Nigeria mm. and how that may differ from people's perceptions and maybe like the UK might have been the study that they used to decide that the, the medications that we have should be the colors that they are. That's so interesting. Yeah, and then I guess we're broadly similar to the UK. Yeah, or at least they assume we are. Like, maybe they've done this. I, I assume that they probably, for something like, uh, you know, pain, over-the-counter pain meds, they've probably done a broad enough study because it's such a big market. But for some of the more obscure things, you could imagine them, or a common thing happens in all sorts of medicine, is they just do one-off study on, like, m- I don't know, med students in, in New Zealand or something, and then everyone's like, yeah, <laughs> that's... a hundred med students in New Zealand. Yeah, all men or something. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just like, ah, yeah, that's all probably All colorblind, true. accidentally, didn't yeah. ask. Didn't ask. Um, <laughs> they they uh, they do sometimes overgeneralize, but um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. That it's totally because it's totally cultural, of course. Yeah, yeah, the color thing. So yeah, cool. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting one. Are you ready for something that has nothing to do with that? Come on, <laughs> you got to go pull into your grab of grab bag of pharmaceutical facts no i this is one i'm really i you know i'm trying to be on a roll right now with things that i think you will be especially interested in ah okay okay we'll see if i nail it you let me know after the fact okay but not in after the fact i'm not not to interrupt you giving the fact that i'm like you know what no (laughs) no after i give the fact if you're not interested you can tell me and then we will proceed as though you are (laughs) (laughs) uh fun fact alan and arik can't have the station wagons of their dreams Mostly because incentives created by how American fuel economy standards were written. Uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard little bits about this, about that. Because I'm always complaining about like, oh, why don't they make a car like this? Or why don't they make a car like that? And like the way that the fuel standards are. Or like, why are cars so huge now? Or like all these giant pickups yeah. and stuff like so that. So this is what I'm going to get into. Because I've, yeah. I've also heard like that, that it is because of the standards. And I finally said... Well, what's up with that? What are the standards? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just to to for those of the those of, of you out there who are not maybe quite as obsessed with this topic as Alan and I, and especially right now, both both Alan and I, top of mind for both. Well, of us. now it like stopped being top of my mind. Oh, yeah. I finally solved my problem. Still but it'll be still pretty high on the mind for a while because I spent so much time trying to research yeah. to find it. And then actually buy it anyway. Yeah, still top of mind for me. So both of us love the classic station wagon. I would say it's like the perfect family car. Oh, yeah. And in Europe, they're super common and prevalent. You can get, I mean, I once sent you a video from the Netherlands, I think, where every single car in a parking lot was a, some form of station wagon. Yeah, and but, we would send each other, like, ironically, cr- cruelly videos, like, uh, the five uh, the five best family EVs, and it would be, like, all station wagons that only exist in only in exist UK. in Europe, right. So, yeah, this Citroen whatever exactly. is a great family carrier and exactly. easy to park. And they just don't sell them here. And so, and, and the other thing, too, is, I don't know if you have noticed, and it sounds like you have, but we, we, we used to have 
compact pickup trucks. Yeah, like the little Ford, Ford Ranger and there's little Toyota ones. Yeah, the, the old Toyota ones. Even the old Ford 150s. Like when you see, like I live in a neighborhood that has a bunch of classic pickup trucks and the new ones and the size difference is just hilarious. It's like they're not even from the same species. Yeah, when you there's this video that was going around of because um, someone had posted they thought it was cute that they had a rule with their daughter that when she got out of their new giant F one fifty that they would um, when she was dropping her off for school she would have her daughter hold her hand up uh, high as she walked around the truck so that she could see her daughter was there because the truck was so high that her like seven year old or whatever like couldn't, you couldn't see the top of her head yeah. over the hood. And and she was like, oh, isn't that cute? We have this little thing. And then people are like, it is very not cute that you need to do that. Like, it's not her fault that the truck is, well, she chose that truck. But, like, it's a systemic problem. It's not this one individual that they have this pretty terrifying <laughs> Totally. It's terrifyingly huge. The follow-on effects of some of that are ridiculous. And, I mean, I even think of, like, a car like the Mini, which is called Mini. But if you look at modern Minis, it looks like someone took, like, an air pump and just blew them up. Because mm-hmm. they're not small at all. They're huge. But they still look like they should be small. At any rate, a lot of this, I don't know if it's the whole story. I think probably over time there are other factors. But a lot of it is related to quirks in how they wrote the fuel efficiency standards here in the USA. And, unfortunately, that affects Canada because you're not a big enough market to you just kind of get what we get. So, so we're in unintended consequences corner, which is we are which is one of the good corners. Indeed, yeah. this is definitely unintended. Well, this is either unintended consequence corner or scheme corner, and we well, will <laughs> we will we will get to why that's okay. the way that that is. So here in the United States, the standards for fuel efficiency are called the corporate average fuel economy, which gets abbreviated as CAFE. Mm-hmm. And they specify primarily how many miles per gallon a car has to achieve, and right. wh- also a little bit about how much you know CO two emissions. But it really tends to be focused here on miles per gallon. And right. one of the major components of the CAFE standards is that it bifurcates all of the vehicles into two broad categories. You can either be a passenger car or you can be a light truck. And the fuel efficiency requirements are completely different depending on which segment your vehicle is in. I'm going to go ahead and guess that if you're a light truck, then they go easier on you. And therefore, there is now an incentive to be a light truck. Absolutely. And this led to, for example, in the mid-2000s, do you remember the truly terrible Chrysler PT Cruiser? Oh, yeah. So that car... Was that a light truck? (laughs) That was a light truck. So they they built that for to perfectly meet the basic... NHTSA, which is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they built it so that it would just meet the minimum standards to be classified as a light truck. And they did that on purpose because it was actually a pretty fuel-efficient car. And by making that one car, quote-unquote, light truck, it raised the fuel efficiency average for the entire segment at their company. And it's not a per-car thing. It's an average across the category. Right. So that Chrysler... All of their other cars, all of their other light trucks would not have met the standards of the time. But because they put this fuel-efficient PT Cruiser in that bucket, it lowered the average or raised the average or whatever just enough that all of those cars were considered – or all those trucks or whatever were considered okay. Uh, so do you, do you know what it was that they did to make it like a light truck? Like what the – I don't know. And I, I would love to, if anyone out there does know, like, let me know, because that, that's really fascinating. I know that um, my mother used to talk a lot about when, when looking at cars, like whether it was built on a car platform or a truck platform and 
I, what exactly that meant. Like she really wanted it because at some point she wanted a, like a small SUV, but it had to be built on a car platform. And that's why she for a long time owned a Subaru Forester, but um, which is now a giant SUV like everything else. But so, yeah, if someone knows out there or I'll can try to do a follow on fact with it. But in 2006, they modified the formula and they changed it specifically to base the fuel targets on the footprint of the car which is defined by the wheelbase multiplied by the wheel track. So like between the two wheels multiplied by like horizontally multiplied by between the two wheels vertically, right? So the smaller a car's footprint is, the more strict the fuel standard is. So a, oh, no. so, so a tiny car like the Honda Fit has a much higher fuel standard that it has to be held to than a Ford F-150. Okay. They did this supposedly to encourage mm. car makers to build more efficient passenger cars because they're like, okay, for these passenger cars, these small cars, we're going to really turn the screws and make them build these really fuel-efficient cars. But, of course, instead what it did was encourage car makers to, A, build bigger trucks because if their truck was bigger, it would have a lower requirement, and, B, to create the – similar to – actually, this does relate to your fact because similar to the way that they created the caplet, they created the – crossover right which is a car-based vehicle big enough to be classified as a light truck right and so this led this directly led to all of these companies killing off their station wagons and instead releasing crossovers because their station wagons did not meet the rising fuel standards of the of the car segment so for an example volvo who for my entire childhood and yours dominated the family station wagon market right that, that's yeah that's what you classic. think of it's classic and over time, if you look at like an XC70 or something, like one generation, it's a station wagon. The next generation, it's still basically a station wagon, but higher off the ground and bigger. And now it's just an SUV, right? And they they replaced each model of the station wagons that they had with an exact direct replacement that's just a light truck because uh, they weren't actually able to match the fuel efficiency. The fuel standards. efficiency. So they had to. They were forced to make it less efficient. In order to meet the efficiency guideline. Right. And the other thing is that the uh, compact pickup truck specifically is is not a thing anymore. Basically because if you – and I'll put a link in the show notes to, to this. You can see in the in the graphs for both passenger cars and light trucks, the curve of like how the fuel efficiency rises based on the size mm-hmm. um, or lowers or whatever, there, there's a dead zone right at almost exactly the size of a compact truck where they're not big enough to avoid high mile per gallon requirements, but they're too big to be able to achieve them. Right. So there's like an an impossible f- result to the formula. Yeah, basically a Ford Ranger basically space. can't exist. Like that specific truck falls perfectly in there. Right. Even though it would be way better for overall emissions if people who would be interested in that vehicle could buy it. Right, totally. But it's like, I think, like something like 55 uh, uh, is like the perfect footprint for like, you know, or the or the threshold for for being big enough, but it's a fifty, uh, you know, uh, whatever that is, square feet or whatever. Um, and so it just can't it can't exist. And now in Europe, con- in contrast, they don't use size as their component to their regulations. Instead, and they don't use mile, miles per gallon. Instead, they do the I think much saner thing of measuring tailpipe CO two. Yeah, and the result of that is that what ends up being what changes in cars there is the engine size. Not the oh. body style. So you can get a station wagon with a small engine and have higher miles per gallon, pay less, whatever. Or you can get a station wagon with a big engine and have lower miles per gallon. Right. 
And you might pay more because they tax based on the amount of emissions you're creating. Which seems extremely reasonable. Yeah. And so you can you can be like, you can drive a, a station wagon that's a little puny and underpowered, or but maybe perfectly fine, or exactly where you want it, or ridiculously overpowered, I, I, I assume. I don't know. I mean, I do. I will say that they are starting to get bigger even there. I think that's more for cultural reasons, because we're exporting the idea of big cars over there. But the problem, so, okay, so that's unintended consequence corner, right? But I mentioned that there was perhaps a scheme to this. Yeah. And you might ask yourself, other than the fact that literally nothing can be changed in this country anymore of any kind, why have they not changed the rules? It's so obvious now what's happening. Yeah. Well, the U.S. uh, trucks are like such a huge domestic market, right? That's right. So the problem is that full-size trucks are the major way that car makers in the U.S. make any money. It's like the entirety of their profit margin. Maybe that's changing with EVs coming in, but historically, full-size pickup trucks are the entirety of the business. So they basically sell everything else as almost like a loss leader to the trucks. That's why Ford a few years ago announced they weren't going to make anything but like pickup trucks anymore, right? And Mm. so in order to stay in business, the U.S. automakers, quote-unquote, need big trucks to be affordable, and they supposedly cannot achieve higher fuel standards profitably. So basically, the whole thing at this point is just incentives to prop up the legacy American automakers who are then incentivized to continue making bigger trucks and cars and are incentivized to market bigger trucks and cars to American consumers, right, by touting them as safer and all these other kind of like, again, similar to the caplet thing, like a little bit different, but in a sense similar. The, The marketing then follows because the truck companies would need you to buy their giant trucks, right? And if if the rules actually did change, then what would happen in, in the U.S. is that it would change to be similar to Europe, presumably, where you literally almost, I mean, you know, having now lived in, in Europe for some time, you never see trucks unless they're being used for what they're actually intended for, which is people. Which is actually reasonable. Who use them for work, right? So they become a, they become a, a business pr- purchase, a professional vehicle. Yeah. And you just never see them. Now, that's also because and even when you see them in Europe, they're smaller because the roads can't have trucks that big. And there's no need yeah, to make them Yeah, because they charge big. you for having a bigger, more polluting vehicle. That's right. So it makes no sense. It would be too expensive. It would be uneconomical and you don't need it. So, you know, and instead you just get these just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger trucks here. And it almost becomes similar to the way that the credit card companies Right, make these heavier and heavier credit cards to the point where they now brag about how heavy their cards are. Yeah, and then people are like, things. "My Apple uh, card made of titanium or whatever, like, doesn't fit in my wallet slots because it's like too beefy." Because it's too beefy. But if they try to make them, if they make them punier, then I don't know. It's not as impressive a card to have. Yeah, then your American psycho scene about your credit. That's cards right. You're the business well. card guy, and it doesn't have the nice font and the whatever paper and da 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 da. da. So, so then my question about that all that is if these are the emission standards for gas vehicles and that's driven larger vehicle sizes, then for electric vehicles, yeah. are we going to see a, a small electric truck? Because I like I wouldn't buy a pickup truck, but I kind of like enjoy following any of the various like developments in, in electrification. And the two most famous electric pickups that are like coming on set on for sale are both the rivian and the f-150 which are both huge it, it's true that they're both pretty pretty huge but i will say that the r1t the rivian is only a four and a half foot cab or a, a bed, bed i mean which is actually quite small for for pickup trucks like it's not mm. a full-sized bed it's still a pretty big car and i do wonder 
that may have something to do with the off-roading that may have something to do with sort of just the nonsense machismo of American driving at the moment. But I, yeah, you, at least in theory, you should be able to see those smaller car cars and trucks. The question I guess would be, have we adapted our mentality too far away and what would lead us to make them smaller again? Because, you know, the primary thing that drove smaller cars, like the creation of fuel efficiency standards in this country was almost entirely fueled by the gas shortages of the 70s, right? Yeah. So what would push us for an electric vehicle? Would it be like electric prices getting too high? Like what would push us for more efficiency equaling smaller? You know, electric just changes the entire trade-offs. The trade-offs are just completely different. So I think it will be really interesting to see, though, like what perhaps the electrification will just mean that there is a wider variety of options. But I do know that, you know, like my wife having come from, you know, uh, Europe initially, she, she felt like the cars here were just so huge and ridiculous, but also now driving on these roads, she kind of feels like you got to have a big car because otherwise you're well, it's like an arms race then. Well, you're, you're yeah. For, for safety where there are pedestrians and cyclists lose where pedestrians and cyclists lose. That's right. And, and that's, especially because you can't see the seven year old over the car. You can't see exactly. a lot of, you know, well, and, and, and also in Europe and like, this is like becoming a recurring thing that probably I imagine annoys some percentage of our listeners. They were like, well, things are better in Europe. Um, but in Europe they have also fault. passenger safety standards for cars. So that we have collision standards here or in North America, where it's, if your car gets an accident, then you're supposed to protect the male adult driver. I think this is the dummy that they test. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, um, right. that's right. Uh, and if, and, and like, you know, maybe they care about other passengers, but for the most part, they're mostly concerned about the male adult driver. Um, but the people outside of the, the vehicle, they don't really test anything about, but in Europe, as I understand it, they have a, um, some tests that check for things like, is the person who, the pedestrian yeah. likely to get, uh, pulled under the vehicle or are they going to be not or are they going to be safer above the vehicle and uh, is there any like elements of the front fascia that are like unreasonably uh protruding or dangerous to a passenger i mean they they just changed it here so that electric cars even had to make any noise at small like low speeds like my car is old enough that it doesn't make any noise when oh, uh, really? when i'm going at small speed so i sneak up on people accidentally all what the time. year is your car 2018 Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's still probably one of the very, very first electric cars, like, by number. By like number. Model. And now they can't do that anymore. They have yeah. to They have to make enough noise at small speed. They have to play fake noise at small speed so the pedestrians... Although, if if to throw one back at the everything's better in Europe crowd, uh, or the people who think that's annoying, they, they were, like, at least talking about passing a rule, maybe did pass a rule, that it had to be as loud as a car, which is, like, so eh, stupid. That's a little bunch. Because it's, like, that's noise pollution and bad for you and there's a lot of studies about that. So like we finally have a way to make that all that noise go away. Like don't bring it back. Like that's incredibly yeah. stupid, but like, yeah, no, it's, it, I really, that's a really great question. I have no idea. I mean, I think there are people who study that kind of those kind of like follow on incentives of, of these kinds of choices. And it's what makes writing legislation so hard as well. Right. And it's like why, you know, you, something like GDPR leads to this endless amount of pop-ups, but that's actually not what, 
the law the goal was wasn't to... like you know what we really need we want every website just have a lot of pop-ups and just make every time you visit somebody's website you want to read something you have to think about what is this cookie pop-up asking you do i want to manage my preferences right and apparently most of those are actually not even achieving what the you know the law requires mm. so like you know i think but it it's is like plausibly deniable that they're at least trying but this is the problem yeah but this is the problem in at least here and probably in other places too that you know laws move slowly so like if you have something like this cafe standards thing i mean we're talking about the last the, this particular change that we're talking about happened uh what was it like 2006 so that's like 16 years ago Hmm. So at what point do we say, okay, let's change it again to sort of try to fix some of these problems, right? Like you, you do have to keep, you have, you have to be able to update as you discover what, you know, what we're doing. But well, the I imagine the European one updates pretty frequently. Like for example, for whatever reason, in the last couple of weeks, I was going through the building codes that we have mm. in Canada, which I assume is probably the case in the States because building codes are not politically controversial like these, these <laughs> car standards are. And so they probably get updated every five or 10 years as people yeah. learn new things about like, oh, fi- fire standards and maybe new building materials and earthquake requirements. And the, we were learning things over time about what are good and bad ways to build buildings. And they update the standards regularly and, that's just a normal thing that you don't have a standard and you're like 15 years later, it's like, well, we've learned nothing. Like we've learned so much about passenger <laughs> safety and vehicle safety. Yeah. Safety. Um, so that's, yeah, I think it's really just comes down to the will and like the, the political complication of potentially harming one of the core manufacturing industries. In, in yeah. I mean, I think US. that's mostly what it is, you know, anywhere you wander into lobbyists or whatever. But I think as an example, to your point about building standards, one thing that I really appreciate now living in a home that was completely redone before we moved in and so had to meet modern, like up-to-the-date standards, is that one of the things they decided at some point was, you know, people are plugging more things in and tripping over cords is a thing. So let's just mandate that you have to put power outlets in every room ever, every end feet. Yeah. And so my house has so many power outlets in it and they're all super safe. Like they they don't need the little covers anymore. Kids can stick stuff in there. Nothing's going to happen. You can't, you know, you're not going to make a circuit like, but there's so many outlets and it's awesome because I don't have to like run cables all over the room to try to get a light plugged in. You know what I mean? Well, building codes are especially valuable because buildings last for so long. That's right. That's right. And every house until now I've lived in all the electrical was done. You know, my a, a good friend of mine, he he bought a house around the same time I did, but his house had not been updated. And he's, you know, right now, literally right now, I went to check on it today because he's out of town. He's replacing all the knob and tube wiring. Or yes, some of it. which is like super dangerous and so dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's completely ungrounded and all the like, you know, it's wrapped in cloth that's for, it's you disintegrated because it's hundreds disintegrated. Years old. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I would think that that near sparks would be a fire hazard. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, um, it's very frustrating as, as, well, okay. So for me, it's very frustrating as a citizen of this country where we basically can't change almost anything anymore Mm -hmm. and talk about Tylenol not being approved now. Libraries wouldn't be approved now. (laughs) Socialism. Exactly. Like we're letting people read for free. What? You know, but I cannot even imagine how much more frustrating in this instance it must be for you. Actually, I kind of can because of some <laughs> things that happen in Canada when things happen here that you and I talked about recently. Yeah. But 
but like yeah because we it's not it's not like canadian standards are causing any of this we're just that's right like eh, you just too can't. much work to bother importing that we just that's end right. up with the canadian th- and nafta and then we're just sort of along for the ride but yeah the, the companies are not going to create a completely different thing for canada because there just aren't enough of you yeah so like and by the way the uh the i think the two companies that fought against this standard the most were like vw and maybe mercedes which mm. just makes like perfect sense right it's yeah like, for sure because they don't sell trucks yes <laughs> like, and they're yeah they're building <laughs> things to the other standard one of the exactly. things that i have at some point and maybe it's worth me digging it up but i remember a few years ago there was some debate about us trying to maybe adopt some more of the european standards for huh. vehicles which would be beneficial to but like one of the things the challenges with that is that we have these NAFTA agreements where some of the vehicles are built personally in Canada, personally in the States. And so us having shared requirements with the States is probably better economically for Canada. You know, assuming the standards aren't so dangerous to our pedestrians and safety and air pollution that, you know, that overrides that. But just in terms of economic terms is like beneficial for us to have a shared market for vehicles. But I mean, you know, you just don't have the economic muscle like California has been going up against or like in the trump era california was essentially mm. going against the trump administration of like well we're going to have one set of standards and you can have another and then a bunch of states were like okay we're going with california because they're like this state is like the fifth biggest economy in the world or something like that you know on its own yeah the capital and- of the population of California isn't that much more than the population of of canada no it's actually roughly similar right yeah but one of the things like like if Canada said, okay, a new rule, like we have, like in order to sell a vehicle in this country, you have to do this one thing that no other country does. Then like right. the car companies would adapt some percentage of their models, but some of their models, they wouldn't adapt. A lot of their models, they wouldn't bother. Like you, we would just end up having less choice and it would be more expensive and we, there would be a bunch of downsides to it. Um, so like probably yeah. like pragmatically, it makes sense, would make sense for us to probably either have the u.s laws or the european laws but i don't know maybe if like canada and california get together you'd see that i like that this is where you know my idea my my belief in cascadia comes in but just for the the people shouting at the screen um or at their phones or whatever canada has one million fewer people than california i wonder actually if we're on track to catch up you're moving quickly because we have more immigration than California probably would be 20, 20 in the last year you apparently went up by almost 2 million people so you would catch up pretty soon i would imagine yeah but, people are, of course talking about california like uh, migration outflow over the last couple of years but although i think that some of that's a little i think i think it's just a story like oh people are leaving the bay area people are leaving yeah and now they've Silicon mostly Valley. come back well and some of the tesla people are coming back oh, okay oh. let's not get started <laughs> okay before we finish i have some follow-ups great um we accumulate these and i t- I'll tend to do them in batches um so uh i think those will be these will be mostly be pretty quick um a few episodes ago i talked about the process of buying a family ev and we talked about it some more today if you are curious in getting into maybe buying a family electric car at some point in the next couple of years mm. um <laughs> like Arik, uh i've written up all the various things that i learned over the last year and a half oh, trying to do that great. and a blog post which i will link that was in great yeah uh, that was a great post oh thank you yeah it was one of those i've learned way more than i need to know about this thing i would like to put it so that maybe other people can use it before the information like slowly becomes stale so yeah it I was did, mildly uh, upsetting to me but it's okay I did a, a kind of overview of all the various ways that you might go about trying to get one and some of the trade-offs. Um, second up, 
Gus Mueller, friend of the show, sent in a video of stuff being thrown into a lava lake, which is something that we <laughs> talked about extensively recently on the show. Uh, what would happen if you threw something into a lava lake? We were speculating. He's got a video, and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So we'll link that in the show notes. We also got a uh, follow-up from friend of the show, Lauren. She was concerned that I was encouraging people to not bother washing their razors. I, oh, a few episodes what? ago, I, I, you were saying like, oh, you can put your razor blades in the dishwasher to wash them. And I'm like, yeah. you need to wash razor blades. Well, apparently there's a WikiHow article on how you need to clean your razor blades. And this is a thing that some people do. They wash them with alcohol in particular because then how they can... long are people using the same blade for, though? Because I well, just find that longer they just than are if not... you don't wash it. Yeah, but I just find they get dull pretty... I mean, are they sharpening them? Are like these people using straight razors? Like, what... What? I, I want to know more. I'll link okay. the WikiHow article, which, of course, is the ultimate source of, of course, all knowledge. And the then you can judge for yourself. Drawings. See some illustrations. Yeah. And I will. And the last follow-up that I have is on... Uh, we talked about high-pressure processing on the uh, previous episode, which if you haven't heard us talk about that yet, then go try in your podcatcher. It will now be available despite my failure for the first two hours of uploading the wrong episode. Um, and we've forgiven you, Alan. We've forgiven you. Well, it's by the analytics, like most people have now just given up on the show and they're <laughs> yes, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but hopefully they'll return. Um, so we talked about high pressure processing, the ability of, uh, modern food processing techniques to make things food safe to eat by uh, crushing the bacteria to death. Um, and we ask rhetorically the question of, could you use high-pressure processing to make raw chicken safe to eat? Uh-huh. And so I went and did a little bit of research because I was sort of fascinated by this question because we eat raw or like a lightly cooked uh, beef and like I mean, people have rare steak and these sort of things, but chicken historically has been something that you can't do that for. Um, and of course, the idea of eating raw chicken is disgusting, but like people would have said that about beef when beef wasn't safe to eat it, yeah. when it wasn't fully cooked, but now it is, and we know it's actually delicious. Yeah. Um, so the answer is you could do this. They have studies that show that you kill the pathogens uh, effectively at high enough pressure. Um, so you can make raw chicken edible, but unfortunately the amount of pressure that you need yeah. does affect the flavor and texture somewhat. In particular, feeling. it, it uh, induces lipid oxidization. So the fats and the that chicken. doesn't sound good. Yeah. And so it can make the t- chicken taste slightly rancid, um, and make the texture of the meat harder and gummier. Which None, is nothing not about this sounds ideal. good. I mean, d- we had rancid chicken in our house recently. I think we, I may have talked to you about this, and it smelled so terrible. Yeah. Like I didn't even like opening after like multiply bagging it. I didn't even like opening the trash can until it was gone. Yeah, it's really gross. But 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 it's okay because it would be safe. Because like normally rancid chicken. If it would be so much bacteria, yeah, but I still wouldn't want it around or to eat it, right? But maybe it would be a delicacy, right? Mm, Yeah, I mean, there is a there is a sausage (laughs) in France that Uh essentially smells like like excrement. Yeah, and I bet it's like super expensive. A delicacy. And did lead to a hilarious moment where my former boss and friend ordered it without knowing what he was doing, and then regretted it. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so if you really want uh, to try chicken tartare and you don't mind it being very slightly rancid tasting, but probably more problematically gummier. I do mind, though. Although it says it makes it gummier than normal raw chicken. But, like, I've never eaten raw chicken, so maybe if I was to eat it, I'd be like, I don't know, I could, this texture is okay, but I wish it was a little gummier. Huh. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. Probably not. I don't that would so. be pretty Probably surprising. not. I would be very surprised. But if you really, really would like to try raw chicken uh, in a safe way, uh, this is not medical advice, um, then you can buy one of these multi-million dollar high-pressure processing machines and crush the crap out of your chicken breast and then uh, go to town and let us know if you do try that, uh, which you shouldn't. You officially should say don't yeah, try someone that. else try it because I'm not. But if you I'm do anyway, despite it. me saying not to try it, then, yeah, then let, us know. let us know. Inquiring minds want to know. I don't want to try it. Even if you tell me it's great, I don't want to try it. Maybe but... that'll be our thing that we do after we did the Impossible nope. Burgers. Nope. Nope. <laughs> no? Nope. You're not down for nope. it? No. We'll find something else. We do need a thing. Although, by the way, I've eaten so many Impossible Burgers since then. I love Impossible Burgers. Oh, yeah. Burgers. I'm all about it. Yeah. I have yeah. Them. They're great. I order them most of the time. If they're available, that's what I'm getting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. 